Gilliman watched Max sleeping, then looked around at the small fires dotted through Braddock's camp. He sighed and breathed a prayer for all the soldiers and the day that awaited them. He then gazed at Washington's tent and lifted up the weakened soldier sleeping inside. Not only would George Washington need supernatural physical strength tomorrow, he would also need divine protection to survive the coming attack. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. On today's episode, we'll hear Chapter 30 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, Plus, later on, we'll hear from our author friend Jenny L. Cody in Jenny's Corner. And in Nigel's News Nuggets today, we'll be shouting out to a town in Iowa that is leading the entire world in Epic Order podcast downloads. Hmm, more on that later. Our chapter today is entitled Plowshares and Swords. And as the title implies, for some colonial Americans, like Patrick Henry, it's time to raise both crops and a family. But as you may have picked up on in our opening clip, things are also getting stirred up on the American frontier, as, in part, we'll zoom in on Colonel George Washington and the conflicts with the French, British, and American Indians. So I'd better get your hosts out here right now so we can develop some kind of military strategy or something. Uh, first, the Scotty dog who plays a major role in our story, Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce. Ah, uh, just call me Max. Uh, Major Max. <laughs> I like that. Oh, please. Next, our French feline who leads the way in general knowledge, Lisette Brion. Oui, uh, this is uh, generally true. <laughs> Merci. And finally, the intellectual mouse who's always looking for a kernel of truth, but will usually settle for a kernel of corn. Indeed, like that corny joke, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nigel P. Monaco. At your service, indeed. Ah, uh, well then, Max and Liz, as was pointed out by uh, the uh, the announcer chap here. Uh, what was his name again? Denny. Uh, no, that doesn't sound right, old boy. Anyway, as he was saying, seems today's portion of our epic saga is indeed about to get intense. Hi, and also a wee bit confusing. Oh, how so? Oh, I think I get what he means. You are confused too, monsieur? <laughs> I say, Liz, uh, that surprises you. Well, not really, the more I think about it. Hey, it don't take much for the poor lad. I can hear you, you know. Of course, old chap. <laughs> we wouldn't want to talk behind your back now, would we? Aye, that would be rude. We oui, impolite. Uh, so, monsieur, tell us, what confuses you this, this time? time. Well, going along with what Max was talking about, when I think of George Washington, I naturally think of our first president. Oui, uh, it was the same guy, très bien. Well, I know that, but I mean, before that, I remember him being General George Washington. Shh, lad, you be jumping way ahead in the story now. Uh, right, but of course, at this point in 1755, he's Colonel George Washington. Well, everyone has to start somewhere. I mean, give the poor chap a break. Uh, that is not what I'm confused about. <laughs> I'll take it from here, announcer lad. Thank you. It's just that, well, 
we be in the American colonies, aye? We? Oui. But uh, George is wanting to be a soldier for the British? Indeed. We? Oui. And he be fighting against your French army? Well, it is not exactly my army, mon ami. And the Indians are trying to pick sides, but they're not really from the Indies. They be Native Americans. Indeed, but at the same time... So, if the Indians be Americans, and George be an American, they should be on the same side, and... Yes, but you see... So why would either of them want to fight with your British or your French? Well, you see, mon ami... Can't we like... all just get along, then? Well, apparently not. Uh, sadly, no. On the bright side, though, uh, Mon Henry, my Patrick Henry, is not wielding a sword, but a plow in the fields. Aye, that's because he's got a wife and a wee baby to take care of. Indeed, and so, since we've pretty much set the table for you, old chap... Perhaps you could serve up the next chapter, s'il vous plaît, hmm? Yeah, coming right up. Chapter 30. Plowshares and Swords. Pole Green Meeting House, Hanover, March 5th, 1755. A powerful and treacherous enemy is making inroads upon our territories, our religion, and our liberty, our property, our lives, and everything sacred or dear to us is in danger. We are preparing to make a defense, and our most gracious king has been pleased to send a considerable number of his ships and forces to oppose the unjustifiable attempts of our enemies. But unless the success of the expedition depends upon the providence of God, to what end do we humble ourselves before him and implore his help? The thing itself, upon supposition, would be an incongruity, an empty compliment, a mockery. Upon my return from England to Virginia, I met with Governor Dinwiddie, Reverend Samuel Davies began, setting down the proclamation from Governor Dinwiddie that he had just read. He informed me of the looming war upon our land and that General Edward Braddock will soon arrive with two regiments to protect our western borders. As the largest of all the colonies, Virginia will, of course, be part of this campaign. We must support this noble cause with our resources, our soldiers, and our prayers. Governor Dinwiddie asked that I support this day of fasting and prayer by reading his proclamation and leading us all to the throne of God to pray for our nation. I thank you for joining me today. Before we bow our heads together to pray for our brave British and American forces, I would like to speak to you on the subject of war and God's divine providence. Patrick Henry stood in the back of the crowd, hanging on every word Davies spoke. Sally was six months pregnant and had remained home. He walked the half-mile from Pine Slash to Pole Green after already working many hours this Wednesday morning in his tobacco fields. His stomach rumbled, but he paid it no mind. He rubbed his calloused hands on his soiled trousers and felt chagrined to not be as clean and presentable as others gathered here. It didn't escape his attention how those in the upper reaches of society looked at him when they rode by his fields in their carriages. The son of a gentleman justice, failure as a merchant, and now working in his crop-worn fields alongside his slaves. He appeared to be no better than an indentured servant, working the land in back-breaking work with sunburnt skin, a sweaty brow, and filthy hands. But Patrick felt an urgency to join with the others on this day of fasting and prayer, so he came just as he was, right from the fields, 
Rumors of Indian atrocities against families living out on the frontier set off an alarm in everyone here in Hanover. War was coming, and Patrick Henry knew he couldn't join in the physical fight with a sword, having a dependent wife and a baby. But he could join in the spiritual fight on his knees in prayer. For now, his hands were occupied with the plowshare, and he would have to let other young men take up swords to fight the enemy. Uncle Langlou was right. His battlefield was the tobacco fields. After their blissful wedding, Patrick and Sally immediately got to work, she with the house and he with clearing the land. Their families had provided them with enough furniture, dishes, and livestock to get their small farm going, but they would soon have a new mouth to feed. As with every family here in rural Virginia, they planted corn, wheat, and oats to feed themselves and their animals. They had pigs, chickens, sheep, cattle, and two old horses. But the crop they planted to provide for their livelihood was tobacco. Pine Slash had flat clay soil surrounded by pine woods. The land had been over-farmed and its soil nutrients depleted except for some remaining sandy loam. Patrick had high hopes that once he cleared the land of the pine brush, stumps, and rocks, he would have a chance to produce the tobacco he needed to support his family. In January and February, he prepared the seed beds, clearing, burning, and hoeing the soil. He and his workers were in the process of planting the tiny tobacco seeds. Next, they would rake the seed beds and cover them with pine boughs to protect the infant plants. Come April, they would spread the fragile seedlings to four inches apart. If his seedlings survived bad weather and the hungry tobacco flea beetles, Patrick would then transplant them to prepared fields in May. Hilling was the hardest part of the tobacco planting process. Knee-high hills of soil were made and spaced four feet apart. Experienced tobacco farmers could prepare 500 hills in a single day, but Patrick was still learning, so would move at a slower pace. Of course, even if Patrick prepared the land the best he could, he was completely dependent on the rain to water it. He would have to wait until rain softened the soil to transplant the young tobacco plants to their final location. Until the plants reached knee-high, Weekly tilling was necessary to kill weeds and keep reshaping the hills. After about two months, a series of continual steps then had to be taken for the tobacco to grow. The plants would be primed by removing two to four leaves growing at the base of the plant and topped by removing the cluster of small compact leaves at the tip so the plant wouldn't use its energy to make flowers and seeds. Healthy plants now grew to three to four feet tall and suckers, or tiny shoots, had to be continually removed from the stalks. Even with all that toil, diseases and pests battled the farmer to destroy the tobacco. If the dreaded hornworm wasn't daily picked off and crushed underfoot in the blazing summer months, they could destroy a crop in less than a week. Hopefully by late August or early September, the six to nine foot plants would be ready for harvest. Now came the danger of harvesting before the plant was mature, or when its peak had passed. If Patrick waited too long, an early frost could destroy the entire crop. An experienced tobacco farmer could look at the color and texture of the leaves and know the right time for harvest. Patrick would have to figure out this timing as best he could. Once the tobacco leaves were harvested, they would be cured by hanging them on sticks to dry for four to six weeks. Mold was a potential threat to the leaves during this time, 
So Patrick had to know the right time to remove the leaves from the sticks and lay them on the floor of the tobacco barn to sweat for a week or two. After sweating, the leaves would hopefully have absorbed just the right amount of moisture, allowing them to be stretched like leather and be glossy and moist. If the leaves were too damp, they might rot during shipping. If they were too dry, they would crumble and be unfit for sale. Finally, the leaves were put into large barrels called hogsheads, which each held about a thousand pounds of tobacco. Hogsheads were loaded on ships, sent down the rivers of Virginia to Yorktown, and then out to the Atlantic for transport to Great Britain. Only then could farmers like Patrick expect to be paid for this long, hard process of growing tobacco. Patrick had been on the other side of this timeline as a merchant, providing struggling farmers like Mr. Smythe with tools and supplies on credit that Patrick extended. Now he was the one in Mr. Smythe's shoes. But Patrick Henry couldn't bear the idea of being in debt. To Patrick, there was no greater prison than to be financially beholden to anyone. He was determined to pay his debts and do whatever it took to stand on his own two feet. Hanover County had produced 4,000 hogsheads of tobacco last year, but each year told a different story. Time would tell how much 1755 would allow his small farm to yield. Just as his father had told him, 18-year-old Patrick was the one doing the back-breaking work out in his fields, along with two of the slaves, who were even younger than he. The days were long, and he collapsed into the arms of his Sally every evening, happy they were together, despite the exhausting work. If the affairs of nations are at the disposal of the King of Heaven, then how dreadful is the case of a guilty, provoking, impenitent nation! Davies exclaimed. Samuel Davies had recounted God's powerful acts in biblical times and through history, encouraging the people with God's undeniable ability to deliver them. However, deliverance would be dependent on the humility and pure hearts of the people who asked for his aid. Just as John the Baptist called people to repent, so too did Davies implore the people to repent in order for God to listen to their prayers. And if this is the case, how may we tremble for our country and fear the divine displeasure? We have enjoyed a long, uninterrupted peace in this land. We have not been alarmed with the sound of the war trumpet, nor seen garments rolled in blood. But what a wretched improvement have we made of this, and many other inestimable blessings! What a torrent of vice, irreligion, and luxury has broken in and overwhelmed the land! What ignorance of God and divine things! What carelessness about the concerns of religion and a future state! What a neglect of Christ and his precious gospel has spread, like a subtle poison, among all ranks and characters! Poison? Liz thought with a furrowed brow. She and Nigel were also in the crowd here at Polgreen. There it is again, but this time a spiritual poison. Now what shall we do in this dreadful case? Shall we put our trust in our military forces? Alas, what can an arm of flesh do for us if the Lord Almighty deserts us? Let us confess our own sins and the sins of our land, which have brought all our evils upon us. Let us be importunate and incessant in prayer, 
that God would pour out his spirit and promote a general reformation, that he would direct our rulers to proper measures, inspire our soldiers with courage, and decide the event of battle in our favor. Davy's voice was reaching a crescendo. Patrick Henry is not only paying attention to the words Samuel Davy speaks, but how each person here is spellbound by his delivery, Nigel observed. Samuel Davies lifted his hands, animating his sermon. The interposition of providence is frequently visible in the remarkable coincidence of circumstances to accomplish some important end in critical times. I am not enthusiastic enough to look upon every event as the effect of an immediate providence, excluding or controlling the agency of natural causes. But when such things happen... Must we not own that it is the finger of God? We, as they should, Liz answered, and more people besides those present need to hear this sermon, just as he published George Washington's journal here in Virginia and in London. Governor Dinwiddie needs to publish this sermon for others to read. We have no ground for a lazy confidence in divine providence. Nor should we content ourselves in inactive prayers, but let us rouse ourselves and be active, Samuel Davies exclaimed. Let us cheerfully pay the taxes the government has laid upon us to support this expedition. Let us use our influence to diffuse a military spirit around us. I have no scruple thus openly to declare that such of you whose circumstances allow it may not only lawfully enlist and take up arms— but that your doing so is a Christian duty, and acting an honorable part, worthy of a man, a free man, a Briton, and a Christian. A loud cheer rose up from the crowd as Davies elevated the spirits of patriotic fervor in those gathered there. Men were ready to enlist for the cause. So far, the words of Benjamin Franklin and George Washington have been published on both sides of the Atlantic, Nigel said, Are you suggesting the same now for Samuel Davies? Oui, mon ami. I'll prepare the letter of suggestion to Governor Dinwiddie myself. Liz smiled at her mouse friend. How soon can Cato fly you to Williamsburg? Ohio Wilderness, July 8th, 1755 He still looks rough, Gilliman. Max whispered with a furrowed brow, looking over a now restlessly sleeping George Washington. Gilliman gathered the rags and basin he had used to help Washington's fever and severe headaches. He motioned for Max to follow him outside the tent. The dysentery has taken its toll, but George is recovering, although weak, shared Gilliman with grave concern. He'll need supernatural strength for tomorrow, and so will you. Get some rest now, Max. I'll be here when you wake. Max yawned and stretched out next to Gilliman by his small fire. Aye, at least it's only ten more miles to reach Fort Duquesne. General Braddock plans to make it all the way tomorrow, and I'll be ready for a fight, Gilliman. Gilliman nodded and gave Max a pet. Good lad. Get some sleep. Gilliman had arranged to become Washington's personal assistant for this expedition into the Ohio Valley to recapture Fort Duquesne from the French. Following Washington's surrender at Fort Necessity last year, 
the British government decided to drive the French from the area once and for all with the strength of its red-coated army. General Edward Braddock was given two regiments of British regulars who were stationed in Ireland. The British reasoned that since this force had kept the defiant Irish in check, they could easily rout any French and Indian opposition. George Washington did not pick up his plowshare to farm for long. After Governor Dinwiddie's proclamation for a day of fasting and prayer, he soon desired a military position with the British Army to go on this expedition to expel the French. But he knew that the British regulars looked down on the colonial militia, requiring their officers to report to lower-ranking British regular officers. George decided he wanted to trade his blue militia coat for the red coat of the regulars and pursued a royal appointment as a major with General Braddock. He soon learned that no rank above captain would be approved here in America, so he accepted an unpaid volunteer position as aide-de-camp for General Braddock. He would be serving next to the most powerful British officer in America, and Washington hoped this would be the stepping stone he needed for a royal commission. Although General Braddock had long served in the British Army with limited combat experience, he was a walking textbook of European military training, and he did everything accordingly. Upon his arrival in America in March, he proceeded to demand provision of funding and supplies from four colonial governors for his army, in intense training at Fort Cumberland. Braddock's brash, arrogant manner, coupled with a sense of entitlement, alienated the colonial leaders. Thankfully, Benjamin Franklin interceded to provide some wagons and supplies for the 1,400 regular soldiers, 700 colonial militia, and handful of Indian scouts. The lack of sufficient Indian scouts was not due to lack of supply, but Braddock's lack of respect, vision, and diplomacy. Not only did he look down upon the colonial backwoods militia fighters, but he considered the Indians as nothing more than territorial squatters who needed to vacate the Ohio along with the French. He rudely told the Indians, who offered their assistance, that not only did the British not need their help in fighting the French, but they would need to leave their ancestral lands once the British took control of the Ohio. Braddock's arrogance and ignorance hung heavily in the air as Washington watched the offended Indians storm out of Braddock's tent. Washington knew firsthand what strong allies the Indians could be in rough wilderness fighting. He also knew the vicious enemies Indians could be if they sided with the French. In order to reach Fort Duquesne, Braddock decided to build a road 12 feet wide and 100 miles long through the wilderness. He pushed a four-mile-long column of 2,100 troops, 2,500 horses, and 300 wagons, plus 600 additional horses carrying provisions and pulling the 12 field guns and mortars. The sheer amount of food needed for the men, as well as the animals, was staggering. A small number of women accompanied the expedition to cook, launder, and provide nursing. Progress was painfully slow as men had to cut trees and build bridges over muddy bogs and streams. Sometimes they only traveled two miles a day. As with any military campaign, illness struck and accidents occurred along the way. George Washington was among many who were afflicted with dysentery, but he pushed on as best he could. At Washington's suggestion, Braddock split his column into two divisions to increase their speed. 
Braddock led the forward flying column of 1,300 lighter-equipped troops and left Colonel Dunbar to follow with the slower supply column of 800 men. Because progress was faster for the forward division led by Braddock, 50 miles soon separated him from Dunbar's support column. Meanwhile, Indian scouts informed the French at Fort Duquesne that the British were on their way with men and cannons. The French only garrisoned 250 combined regulars and Canadian militia at the fort, but 640 Indian allies were encamped outside. The French understood the threat posed by the British cannon, so decided to strike the British as they crossed the last natural obstacle to reach the fort, the Monongahela River. The Indians were hesitant to fight such a large, well-armed British army. But French commander Captain Bougeau knew exactly how to gain their confidence and respect. He dressed as an Indian, covering himself with war paint, and quickly rallied them to his cause. Together, the French and Indians left Fort Duquesne and headed out into the wilderness to ambush Braddock's forces. Gilliman watched Max sleeping, then looked around at the small fires dotted through Braddock's camp. He sighed and breathed a prayer for all the soldiers and the day that awaited them. He then gazed at Washington's tent and lifted up the weakened soldier sleeping inside. Not only would George Washington need supernatural physical strength tomorrow, he would also need divine protection to survive the coming attack. July 9, 1755, Monongahela River. Some talk of Alexander and some of Hercules, of Hector and Lysander and such great names as these. But of all the world's great heroes, there's none that can compare with a tow row 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 to the British grenadier. But the lads seem in grand spirits today. Max shouted above the loud chorus of energetic soldiers singing along with the fifes and drums playing their signature marching song, The British Grenadier. He rode next to Gilliman in the officer supply wagon. British flags flapped proudly in the breeze, and the noisy military parade would soon announce to the French their approach. Gilliman held the reins and looked up at the hills sweeping upward on either side of the road. Yes, they fully expect to sing and march right into Fort Duquesne tonight. General Braddock shares their optimism, but brace yourself, Max. He looked down at the Scotty, his striking blue eyes growing serious. Things are getting ready to happen. When the music stops and I give the word, move quickly and follow my lead. You know what to do. Max furrowed his brow and growled, Aye! After those little skirmishes with random French and Indian scouts along the way, I think word of our approach has sent the French fleeing. Braddock, chin lifted high, confidently told Washington, with no sign whatsoever of the enemy today, I believe the French have already abandoned Fort Duquesne. We should be able to take the fort with no resistance. Together they sat on their horses on the banks of the river, watching the splendid red-coated column singing and marching ahead. George frowned and tightened his lip in response. Why the concerned face, Colonel Washington, do you disagree? Sir, with all due respect, George replied haltingly, looking around them, I believe this lack of enemy activity could be a bad sign. 
Things are too quiet. With your permission, allow me to take a group of experienced woodsmen to scout out the woods ahead of the column. The French and Indians do not fight like the British in open field formation. They use the trees for cover and stealth, just as our militia have learned to do. With this narrow road, I fear we could be walking into a trap with little room to maneuver while using traditional volleys in a firefight. Braddock clenched his jaw and pursed his lips. In an irritated tone, he pointed to the front of the column of men marching in twos. "'Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage has three hundred of His Majesty's finest grenadiers leading this column. We are well prepared for a fight, and do not need to use your primitive militia ways of disorderly conduct to achieve victory. Remember your place, Colonel.' Washington frowned at the general's blind pride. "'Sir, I assure you that my advice is based on personal experience in fighting this enemy,' he began." "'And you were suddenly defeated at Fort Necessity, were you not?' Braddock shouted back angrily, with a humiliating jab at Washington. He pointed to the back of the column. "'Bring up the rear of the column, Colonel. Go, and do not test me again.' Washington nodded respectfully and turned his horse to obey his commanding officer. He headed to the back of the column as ordered, which only added to his uneasiness. Braddock would listen to no one but himself, and to the cadence of the fife and drum serenading him as he rode to his presumed victory. Braddock snapped the reins of his horse and moved ahead to join in singing the triumphant song with his resplendent red-coated army. Those heroes of antiquity ne'er saw a cannonball, or knew the force of powder to slay their foes withal. But our brave boys do know it, and banish all their fears. Sing tow row 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 for the British grenadier. French commander Beaujou and his men soon came to a narrow path that rose through the woods to an opening that curved to the right, forming a natural trench. He decided to make good use of it, ordering his 200 French and Canadian militia soldiers to make ready in the trench. He instructed the Canadian militia and 300 Indian warriors to target the British officers on horseback, picking them off first to ensure the greatest chaos among the British. The French and Indians readied their muskets as Beaujou held up his hand, preparing to give the signal to fire. It didn't take long. When Beaujou saw the redcoats crest the rise, he dropped his hand and shouted, Phew! The air filled with smoke, and Colonel Gage saw some of his men suddenly drop to the ground. Halt! Form up and prepare to fire! he shouted. His men immediately formed a traditional firing line in the road and fired a volley, stunning the French and Indian forces. Commander Beaujou was instantly killed by a British bullet. The French hesitated in dismay, and some Indians began to scatter into the woods. Instead of pursuing a vigorous bayonet charge to quickly overcome the stunned French forces, Gage ordered his men to fall back toward the main body of Braddock's forces. This allowed French Captain Dumas to rally his men, who began firing again from the trench. The Indians fanned out in the woods and on the hillsides surrounding Braddock's army in a horseshoe attack. Braddock raced to the front of the column, eager to prove his leadership in combat. 
but only chaos ensued as he shouted orders for his men to continue forming traditional European firing blocks. Some of the militia fled to the trees for cover and stealth, just as Washington had suggested to Braddock earlier. In the confusion, the British took their own for the enemy and fired into the trees, killing many of their own colonial soldiers. Over the course of two hours, Braddock rode around furiously waving his sword, shouting threats to the troops if they did not continually reform and attack. Men were screaming in agony and falling at every turn, and officers were being picked off their horses by Indian snipers one by one. Braddock's horse was shot out from under him, so he mounted another. That horse was also shot out from under him. Then another, and another. Washington raced his horse to the front of the column, dodging enemy fire and the bodies filling the road. Just as he reached Braddock's position, a sniper took aim, and the bullet found its mark. It penetrated Braddock's arm, then entered his chest. No! Washington screamed as Braddock fell from his horse. At that moment, George's second horse was also shot out from under him. He fell to the ground unhurt, and immediately got to his feet, running to Braddock. The British general lay in the road, blood quickly causing his white shirt to match the red of his brilliant coat. Max was in position. As George ran to Braddock's aid, Max jumped to hit the sniper who had Washington in his sights, causing the shot to miss. Max ran from sniper to sniper, pushing them off balance while George crouched on the ground. Quickly! Help me get him to the rear! George shouted to some of the British regulars nearby. Two men responded, lifting the wounded general as Washington led them through the carnage to get their commander to safety. When they reached a safe distance, they placed Braddock in a wagon to take him back to the other support column. Braddock wore a look of shock. Who would have thought it? He wondered with a garbled voice as he clasped a bloodied hand over his chest. We shall know better how to deal with them another time. Washington gritted his teeth at the absurdity of Braddock's words. Had the general listened to George in the first place, he would have known better this time, avoiding this ambush. Get him to safety and medical care, the lieutenant colonel ordered the men. When the wagon moved on, a white horse was suddenly standing there calmly in the road. George quickly mounted the horse and drew his sword as he raced back to the fight. In his haste, he didn't notice that the horse, now carrying him back to the heat of battle, had striking blue eyes. Oh, Twabian, it is so clear that the hand of God was on George Washington. Aye. But the paw of the Scotty had a wee bit to do with it, too. We, oui, Max, you were doing the work of the maker for George Washington as well. Uh, pardon. Uh, apology accepted. Ah, merci. Uh, now, today on Nigel's News Nuggets, Nigel is about to salute one of our most attentive audiences in the world. Greetings, Nigel P. Monaco here in the newsroom with an interesting development in the heartland of America. To give you some backstory, this Epic Order of the Seven podcast was launched on March 24th, 2020, just over a year and a half ago at the time of this recording. 
In our first 18 months, we amassed over 11,000 downloads from 43 different countries and 46 of the 50 United States. Uh, not bad. Uh, many of the highest listening states were indeed from the heartland of America, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, and Wisconsin. But for some reason, we heard very little from their nearby neighbor, Iowa. In fact, only two downloads were garnered from the Hawkeye State in the first 18 months of our podcast. But during the last month, nothing could be further from the truth. Our research shows that the state of Iowa has accounted for over half the downloads in America, nearly half of all the downloads worldwide. And here's the kicker. Every last one of them is from the same exact place, the city of Council Bluff, Iowa. Now, Council Bluff is located along the Missouri River, right across the river from Omaha, Nebraska. We here at Epic Order Studios are incredibly curious as to why Council Bluff, Iowa has suddenly become our most avid listenership. And so we ask, dear Council Bluffians, if you have the inside scoop, please share it with us. We'd love to hear. Simply pop off an email to us at jenny at epicorderofthe7.com. That's jenny at epicorderofthe7.com. And please accept our heartiest huzzahs. For Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco reporting. Uh, merci, Nigel, and well done. Uh, and speaking of Jenny, it is now time for us to head over to Jenny's Corner and talk with our author friend, Jenny L. Cody. Liz, did you have a question for me today? Well, today we focused on two of America's amazing founding fathers, Monsieur Patrick Henry, of course, and George Washington. Uh, Miss Jenny, as you were researching for this book, uh, what was it that stood out to you about these two fine gentlemen? One of the most remarkable things about our founding fathers is to see how young they were and how much responsibility they carried on their shoulders. Here you've got an 18-year-old Patrick Henry. He's newly married. He has all of this farmland that he has to toil on to produce tobacco. And when I looked at everything that could possibly go wrong, it really was amazing. Patrick Henry had this land. The soil was depleted. He did the best he could out there breaking a sweat every day and ultimately did not reap what he needed to to be successful as a tobacco farmer. So sometimes when we have to do hard things, we think that, well, this can only be about this thing that's right in front of us. The only benefit to being a tobacco farmer is feed my family and keep the roof over our heads with Patrick Henry being a tobacco farmer. He was doing what he was called to do at that time, but there was a bigger picture going on for Patrick Henry. God had a bigger plan to help him fully understand what the people of Virginia have to do to make a living. And there's no way that he would have gained the support of the people like he did. And he becomes wildly popular and they love him because he was one of them. The way you gain empathy for someone is to stand in their shoes. And he knew how hard it was to do what they did. Hey, well, that covers Liz's Patrick Henry. But what about me, George Washington, then? So George Washington does pick up his sword, and he's young also, just a couple of years older than Patrick Henry, and he has experience in the back frontier type of fighting that the Indians do and their French allies. 
And he tries to give counsel to General Braddock, who is not familiar with this kind of backwoods fighting, and he won't listen to young George Washington. And that's a frustrating thing for young people sometimes. Yes, elders usually have, hopefully, more wisdom, but you can't overlook the wisdom and knowledge of young people, too. And so young people, we need to ask and seek wisdom and knowledge from those who are older. But older people, we need to listen and respect what young people have to tell us because they have something of value. So we're all called to do tough things at different phases of our life. But know this, whatever you're called to do or stuck doing when you're younger, It's going to be used for your good, and it's going to teach you so many life lessons that you will be amazed that you will use in ways you never could have imagined. Well said, Miss Jenny. There is much to be learned from the young, like moi. And there's lots to be learned from the old. For example, hey, announcer lad, what can you teach us about finishing a show then? Well, that an old announcer lad can finish a show without being insulted and a young Scotty dog can go the next week without any special treats. Oh, man! Indeed. Live and learn. And to everyone else, see you next time! Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandee! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.